0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Good evening. Growing up, I was a, a, a huge fan of, of NASA, of, of anything to do with space. My fifth grade class and later my seventh grade class, we lived relatively close to Huntsville, Alabama, to the Space and Rocket Center, and, and those were two highlights of my childhood. I just loved it. So when... I guess I was in college, Apollo 13 came out. It was quickly one of my favorite movies. And one of the reasons it was one of my favorite movies was just the tension. For those of you who have seen the movie, you're on the edge of your seat for the whole movie. And it's, it's incredible to see the leadership uh, of Jim Lovell to get the, the, to, to get the astronauts home safely, but all along, one of the fascinating things about the story is the resources, that, that as they start out, you have those famous words, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, but the problems continue to escalate on Apollo 13, that, that they start with a minor blip, and then uh, Jack Swigert stirs the oxygen tank, and remember, you have this explosion that essentially removes any opportunity they have to go to the moon but puts their life in jeopardy. They just didn't realize at that point just how serious the situation was. And, and then you go from compounding problem to compounding problem to compounding problem. One of the, the most memorable problems they run into is the carbon dioxide's increasing in the cabin. And there's no way because they've lost the ability, the, the cabin was designed for, for two people, uh, during the space mission and they had three there. So they were using up oxygen and putting off far more carbon dioxide than they expected. And the scene I remember is, is back at, at mission control. Uh, the engineers get together and they throw basically everything that's on the spaceship onto a table. And they tell the engineers, you've got to solve this problem that you've got these supplies that these men have, and we've got to figure out how to to scrub the air or they're going to die of carbon monoxide poison. And so they scramble and just as the levels are getting dangerously high, uh, NASA finds a solution, they're able to scrub it. And then towards the end, they're, they're coming up on re-entry and one of the, the mathematicians discover that at the angle that they're coming in, they're gonna just bounce right off the atmosphere and go back out into space and be lost forever. And they're able to do one last burn from the lunar module, which in no way is designed to, to, to be a propulsion mechanism for the space capsule, but it's all they got. And so they set up this final burn to move that lunar module to get the spaceship, to get the capsule into position where it will reenter. And it's fascinating. And here's the thing. All along, and I, and I think this is one of the things NASA always prided itself on, they were equipped. The astronauts had resources, and it wasn't just the physical resources they had in their hands, but they had unlimited, leader, unlimited resources with the leadership of Gene Kranz, the team of mathematicians, of scientists, of other astronauts, uh, of engineers, that could all come together and help solve the problem. So it wasn't just a story of, of these three astronauts that were able to safely return, but it's in a story of an organization that set up a well-resourced system that was, was, was able to return them because of all the material, the minds, everything going together to put it down. And so when, when I think about this return mission that we've been studying, to bring the children of Israel back from the exile. The thing I think we're going to, that we are going to see in our text tonight is that God equips them. He gives them every resource they have. And that we're going to be able to see in our own lives how God resources us for the things that he calls us to. To this point in the text, we've We've stood amazed that we've seen God not only fulfill His promises in bringing them back from captivity, but the fact that, that He predicted it, that they're, that they're finding themselves in bondage wasn't an accidental thing, that it was a decree of God, that God was taking them through a period of judgment. But even in that, He was gracious because He promised, because of the promises He had made before, to take care of them. And so last week, we looked at how he stirred in the king's heart to fulfill his promises, and we concluded that God ultimately fulfills his promises. And we talked about the promises that he's made to us, promises related to the gospel that he will save us if we have our faith in Jesus Christ. Tonight... I want to look at the text as they're heading back and see how God not only calls his people to do the work, but he fulfills his promises by resourcing them and giving them adequate ability to do what he's actually called them to do. Look in verse 5. It said, then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin the priests and the Levites. So it's interesting that it's, it's only mentioning the houses, the tribes that have come out of Judah, that this isn't a full restoration of the 12, that this is Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites that he's bringing back into the land, that, the, that these are the tribes that were in the southern kingdom that were carried out by Babylon, as you look at the people that he's bringing back, uh, he, chapter two is basically a list of all the people that are coming back. So, so, so verse five really goes in a lot of ways with chapter two. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of Judah, Benjamin, and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go. When we look at, at chapter two, verse one, it says, these are the people of a province who came up out of the captivity, and those exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. And and the rest of chapter uh, chapter, uh, 2 gives us that list of people. But in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, they returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. They came with, and he lists 11 guys. Now, this list is identical to the list that we're going to get in Nehemiah chapter 7. It's just missing one name. And most of the scholars say that it's a that it's a copyright error, that there should be 12 names here, basically, because God is not accidental in the fathers that he mentions that brings them back. That just as he has called the 12 tribes of Israel, just as he, Jesus calls 12 disciples, he's communicating here to us that this is not an accidental group of people. There wasn't just a call output and hey, anybody that wants to come, come on back. That there's an an intentionality to the people that return that we see all through chapter two. Uh, These people represent the embodiment of the people of Israel. This is, he wants us to know, this is the fulfillment of God's promise. This isn't a ragtag group that's just trying to make an attempt to come back. This is God's ordained return that he has promised. As we look through the list, you know, we see the the about 50,000 people that come back as we read through the list, Kidner says that this list is actually a monument to God's care for Israel's vitality, uh, that this list shows how the people are related, that, that we've got records of their families and their location, that, that, that family and location, that's how we humanize a society, right? If this is just a list of random people or, or chapter two wasn't there and it just said 49,000 people came back... You and I would be pretty, that would be sort of a generic image. But when we go through a list and we talk about families, that adds texture to it, right? That shows you these are real people with real lives. A lot of times we do that on the news, right? When we hear about groups of people on the news, we just hear this number and it doesn't really impact us but when we hear stories and we see pictures and we hear families, that there's a depth to that. And and that's what this list in chapter 2 helps us see, that this is a specific people returning under God's promise. For the people's part, it also shows you that they have a tenacious memory that they remember families, they remember place, they remember relationship. It's been two generations. This is 70 years later, and they're able to line people up according to where they came from and who their families are after two generations, that that they have refused to be robbed of either their past or their future. So when you read through this list, there's a tendency for us to just skim on through it. Um, I told Jared that was going to be the Bible reading tonight, was for him to work all the way through chapter 2. He argued and said he wasn't willing. But the emphasis even in the list isn't just a social thing. It's, it's got religious implication. Kidner says, this is a holy nation given a new chance to live up to its calling. There can be nothing casual in the preparation. Not only must every priest have credentials, but every member. You know, if you look over here in chapter 2 and verse 59, we've got this group of people. It says the following were those who came up with Telmechah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And and you might be tempted to think, then you just say, ah, oh, that's all right, just come along. But they're kept at a distance until the priests can actually confirm that they actually belong. So while we might be tempted to see this as just a casual return, come what may, we realize the seriousness and the record keeping and the seriousness and the verification that went into it so that, so that you say there's nothing casual about this return. Every single manner. I, I, when I read the list, I tend to think this is... is just a, a, they're just trying to get a feeling of nostalgia or maybe someone was a little OCD. But you recognize, no, from God's perspective, this is the remnant because look at the rest. Turn back with me to verse one. I mean, sorry, chapter one in verse five. Everyone whose spirit God had started to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. These are the very people that God had called. The text leads me to believe this was a pretty specific calling that he stirred in the hearts. Where have you heard that term stirred in the hearts before? Back with Cyrus, right? God stirred in Cyrus's heart to let these people go back. So while on the one hand, we've got this story that we could make a movie about. The silent character behind the scenes that's doing all the work is God. That these are specific people, um, you know. You know, and I think it's important to say too, God didn't just use these people. He used some of the ones that stayed behind. Right? Ezra is not going to come for a while, so he stayed behind. Nehemiah stays behind and, and is a cupbearer for the king. Who else? Well, we've got Esther that Esther stays behind and ultimately ends up saving her people imminently. So the text doesn't really incline some sort of, you know, those that came back were the super Israelites and the other people were scraps. And we don't always know why God moves in some hearts and others. But there seems to be an intentionality that God has here for the 50,000 people, almost 50,000 people that come back. And I think that applies to our lives as well, that God has given us all different roles um, to play. He calls us to do for different things. There's a tendency when we read Esther to to assume that her staying back is a bad thing. There's a tendency to, to look at those that didn't return. But what the text lets us know is these are the instruments that God has used to carry out phase one because phase two and phase three are coming. And they're not coming back for a generic reason. Why are they coming back? Verse five, to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. It's not vacation land to return to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And and, and, and as we think about rebuilding this house, it almost goes without saying But if God's been the one that's initiated the work with Cyrus, and God's now the one that stirred the hearts of those that are going to return, who do you think is going to be building the house that's in Jerusalem? Early in our marriage, Antonia and I, Psalm 127 became one of our favorite psalms as as we thought about raising our kids in this world, as we thought about, you know, I, I don't know what early parenting was like for some of you guys, but I feel like we started having uh, children. Our oldest was born in 99. And I feel like that must have been about the boom for parenting books and parenting philosophies and parenting ideas. We were tortured in the early years but behind whose philosophy do we follow? Do you know, do we follow this plan or that plan or these other plans? And and pretty early on, I mean it was and, and these people weren't all saying the same things. And so in our early years of marriage, we would get away one weekend each year and just sort of pray and think through our gear and and process through our goals for the year. And we always came back to Psalm 127 because we were like, you know, philosophies aside, we can try any parenting philosophy we want, but ultimately, this is the Lord's house. And so, he says in Psalm 127, this is Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You know, we're going to see that as they begin to build, they're going to face some real trials and some real conflict, to the point that there's going to be a pause button pushed. And the thing that God is going to send word back to them through the prophets that, hey, you're not trusting. This is my house. This is the thing I've called you to. Go do it. Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake. I'm sorry, the watchman stays awake in vain. Best laid plans, if they're not upheld by God, they're useless. It's vain to rise up early, to go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's not just a negative thing. It's a positive that you can rest and trust and know that God's the one building the house. It's not up to you. And so I think that had to have been the mindset when he stirred in their hearts, because as we're going to see next week, they get to it pretty quickly and see a lot of early success. I think their mindset completely understood that this is the Lord's work. He stirred it in Cyrus's heart to get us here. He stirred it in our hearts to come and we're building his house. We're depending on him. He goes on in verse 6, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. That that they are well-resourced. That they don't just have God, but God is actually bringing them tangible. He's not saying, be warm and be fed, go do this. He's actually causing the Persians to empty their pockets. Again, like we said last week, this harkens back to Exodus when they the Egypt, plunder the Egyptians to carry out the work. Here the Persians are saying, take our stuff, be well-resourced. Haggai says, uh, if this is later, this is when they're going to they're be um, facing oppositions and, and they're looking forward to the future temple, but, but God says, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. And then he says this, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. It's all God's. You and I are so often worried about the resources we have, the, the tangible resources that we have, the spiritual gifting we have, the fears we have, And God says, hey, this is all mine. You don't need to worry about that stuff. And so here, I mean, to put it in perspective, these people have been in captivity for 70 years. Surely they've built a life, but they don't have the resources to do this. And so what does God do? God do, he moves in the hearts of the men and women to resource them. Not only that, it says Cyrus also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. When the Babylonians ra- ransacked Jerusalem in 586, they took everything. And Nebuchadnezzar took it and stored it in his house of the gods. There was no hope these people would get it back. But God had moved so in Cyrus's heart that Cyrus says, hey, there's this stuff back here you need to take with you. It's going to be important. Who does that? Apart from the stirring and the work that God had done in his heart, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mitharath and Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Uh, some have said that Sheshbazar may be Zerubbabel, but it seems unlikely that this is a prince or, or potentially a first governor. That, w- that in the next chapter, we're going to see as they come into the land, Zerubbabel is going to be the governor, um, which brings about an interesting dynamic that we're going to see in chapter 4. You know, it's said that when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem, they put governors in place, and, and those governors were often going to be the Samaritans that were there. So, You've got to realize some of the opposition that's going to come later in this book is probably going to come from a place that these people were just fine and dandy managing the land themselves. And lo and behold, Cyrus makes an edict, and these guys that were princes and governors are suddenly now gone. And so there's tension already as they come back into the land. But God's going to take care of that. You just realize uh, there was some disruption taking place. Um, verse 9. This was the number of them. 30 basins of gold. 1,000 basins of silver. 29 censers. 30 bowls of gold. 410 bowls of silver. 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And these did chest along bring up with the exiles when he brought them from Babylon to Jerusalem. So these people who were empty are coming back full, fully resourced, fully supplied, fully able to restore the temple because they even have the implements that were stolen from the temple, that they're without excuse. And I think we're meant to come to the end of chapters one and two and say, wow not only does God keep his promises in bringing us back, but God actually provides for and enables and equips what he calls the people to do. That he's not like the harsh taskmaster that says, go do this job, but doesn't give us the resources to do it. He actually well resources anyone that he calls to do a task. That we're seeing truths about God's character in how he deals with the Israelites. And so what about us? What about our calling? As I think about the things that God calls us to do, you know, oftentimes we have a real mystical view of calling, this this idea that you know, I I went to bed, the, the churches I went to a lot in high school, guys would get up on a Sunday morning after a particular emotional sermon and say, I'm, you know, I'm called to ministry. I've been called to the pastorate. And it was this sort of magical thing that just took place. And a lot of times it was emotional. And you know, if, if I knew now what I knew then, I'm sorry, if I knew then what I knew now, I might've sat a couple of those guys down and said, so tell me about this calling." And they would say, well, you know, I was just at church last night and I just sensed the Holy Spirit called me to it. Okay, so where have you done any ministry before? Well, I haven't. Where have you been involved in other people's lives at all? Well, I hadn't. I'm 16. Okay. And, and it's not to say that God doesn't subjectively call some in that way, but this was just such a common thing. It was, a, it was like a phenomenon that took place in my high school. And the vast majority of those guys never pursued anything to do with their faith even, much less in ministry, that, that a lot of us, though, have this idea of calling is this super subjective thing. Um, and, and we see that in the Bible, right? We see uh, God call Samuel, we see God call David, we see God uh, call others, we, I mean, we see God call the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah, their calling is very specific and very concrete. We see God call Moses and puts Aaron alongside him when he doubts himself. We see Jesus call the apostles to do the work they're doing. We see the Holy Spirit call uh, Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries. So it's normative in Scripture to see God calling. And so what are we to do with that today? Well, I would say... We want to think about calling in a couple of different ways. We want to think about uh, the specific ways that God calls us. I heard a guy once say that, that your calling is where your giftedness meets a need. And I think a lot of times when we look around us, we see needs that we're uniquely able to meet, whether that's as a teacher, whether that's as a servant or a helper, that God oftentimes puts us in opportunities to use the gifts that He's given us. And, and a lot of times, calling is as natural as that. It may be that over time, He communicates something very clear to you. For me, you know, the call to ministry was just a, a continuous burden that wouldn't go away for the pastors that lived in, in rural East Tennessee. And God, over time, expanded that to, to a view of pastors all around the world. And I was passionate as a teacher, passionate to reach them. And over time, God just confirmed that, hey, this is where I want you to be. And, it, and when it started out, you know, Antonia and I had been married for a pretty short amount of time, maybe a year, year and a half. We didn't have two pennies to rub together, much less nickels. And so the thought at the time of going to, you know, I knew I needed a seminary degree if I was going to do this. And the thought of going to Dallas Seminary was, it was like a pipe dream. There was no way we could do this. But I had this burden and this thing that that I felt like, again, I didn't have a lightning bolt moment. There was no calling in the sense of what I experienced my friends in high school, but there was this sense of burden and a sense of desire that sort of connected in my heart to opportunity. And I was like, I need to do this, but God, I can't do this. And as I think about this text tonight, I could go back and we could be here all night. I could sort of tell you the story of how God provided all along for that. One of the most significant things that happened is we started praying with an open hand. I was a new engineer in training with an engineering firm in in Louisville and and Antonia and I felt like, you know, that wasn't really where we wanted to be long-term. We wanted to go to seminary, so we started praying. And not long after we started exploring options for seminary, I kid you not, absolutely true story, her aunt calls from West Tennessee, and she says, hey, I know from when you guys were engaged and early on, I've heard Chris talk about a desire to train pastors in parts of the world where they don't have training. Uh, Can you tell me more about that? We've got a family in our church that's just interested to hear more. And so I kind of, I got on the phone with her aunt and talked to her briefly. And uh, she said, well, we're having dinner with them in a couple nights. I just wanted to be able to kind of explain what you're doing. Well, she calls me back that next week and says, hey, there's this family in our church, a family I'd never met that wants to pay for your seminary. And I hadn't even, like, we weren't asking for help with seminary. We weren't asking, like, I hadn't even, it was sort of a, hey, this is something Antonio and I are praying about. We had communicated to the family we wanted to train pastors. But there was no solicitation for me, even to the, like, even in the subtle way of let me tell you about my need. This was out of left field. And, man, we almost wept with the reality of kind of what God had done to show us that not only was he calling us to this job, but he would actually provide for us as we did it. And, you know, over the six years that I was in seminary, this family faithfully, you know, gave us a monthly check that ended up in the end paying for my seminary bill, basically. And, you know, I called... Uh, the man as I was graduating. And I said, you know, any work, any fruit that God ever bears for the rest of my life, you're a, you're a fellow heir. You're a fellow participant in that because you've made such an investment and you will never know, not even the financial side of it, but the fact that God used them in such a way to provide for us. And I could give you about a hundred other smaller stories. That's the most dramatic story I know of how God has just given us a kind of that Cyrus moment of, hey, I will take care of you. But there are countless things along the way that that we've written down and sort of kept track of of how God has provided in ways that we couldn't have even expected to enable us to do the work that he's called us to do. Because here's the thing about calling, here's the thing about the work that he's called us to do. We are God's primary tool, We are his primary means of communication, apart from his word to the world around us. We are the primary actors in solving problems and meeting needs on the world. When people say, God answered my prayer for X, that X is almost always attached to someone who did something, who met a need, who prayed for, who shared the gospel, who taught, almost always. So when you look at the problems in the Bible, when you think about people who find themselves in impossible situations in the Bible, Ruth and Naomi come to mind. How did God minister to them? Well, he did it through people. He ministered to Naomi through Ruth, to Ruth through Boaz. And you and I, whatever the specific angle that he's put you in, we're all called to do that. And we need to realize looking at chapter 1, verses 5 to 11 of Ezra chapter 1, he will absolutely resource anything that he's called you to do. Whether it's reaching out to your neighbor, whether it's taking a big step, whether it's, you know, and I would just ask you, what has God placed on your heart? What burden do you have that you feel completely inadequate to follow through with? Because usually that's where we find ourselves, right? It's, Lord, I know you're asking me to do this thing, but I also know there's no way I can do it. I can't teach. I can't talk. I can't serve. I can't whatever. And I would say, what is it that God's put on your heart? What burden do you have? What needs do you see that you can actually participate in? Um, What gifts do you have? that can minister to other people. And we have to to know that, and then we have to walk by faith with an understanding that God can resource it. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, he says through Haggai. Don't focus on the shortcomings, be faithful to what he's called you to do, and then trust that he's gonna come through. One of the best places we can be is out on that high wire where the only thing we can trust is that he's gonna keep us balanced. Those are some of the most exciting times in in our lives is when we've put ourselves out there and trusted God to come through. That we have to trust him. So that is related to specific calling in your life, but what about the general calling that all of us have? That we've all uh, been called to faithful life as Christians. Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, not for men. Knowing it from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our calling, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether you're... Um, Whatever your vocation is, whatever your lot in life is, do your work as if working for the Lord, not for men. That's hard. I I can get a temporary mindset and I can view this task as a task alone and I just need to get it done. But I'm supposed to do that as if the Lord himself has asked me to do it. That that stands as a testimony before my neighbors, before my coworkers, before my friends, before my family, that everything I do is working for him Romans 12 1 and 2 uh, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to him this is your spiritual act of worship don't be conformed to the patterns of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that's our calling 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's our calling. So, what resources does he give us for that calling? Immediately, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, our paraclete, our helper who comes alongside us, who strengthens us, who helps us, who comforts us, who is our advocate. He's our intercessor. That he enables us to do what God has called us to do. That in the spiritual life, we have something far better than mission control. You know, the Godhead dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and enables and equips us to do these very things. So that when I say to you, everything you do, do it to the glory of God, that seems like a hopeless task until we add in, oh, by the way, the Spirit dwells in you and enables you to do that. Bearing fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He actually bears fruit through you. That's far better than any riches or any resources that the Israelites got coming back. That is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. We also have the grace of God, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the gospel. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We think of the, the grace of God oftentimes as the fire insurance that keeps us from getting what we deserve. But here in Titus, we learn that the grace of God also is the tool that God uses to enable us to live self-right. I mean, to live upright, godly lives, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That we've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We've got the grace of God all around us. That that we all have the calling to glorify God with our lives, and he's equipped us to do that. So what are the challenges? Why don't we do that? Is it because you're making excuses? Is it because you're casual about this? Is it because you don't, it's not a priority in your life? What is it that holds you back from following the calling that you've been called to? So I wanna take a couple of minutes right now uh, before I pray, and I wanna give each of you about a minute or so, to to sit in silence and to reflect and to think about your calling. To think about your calling in general as a Christian and what God is asking of you, but then also to think about individually, what is it that God is is burdening you with? What is it that he's gifted you for? What is it that you need to be doing that you're not trusting him that he'll resource it? So let's take just a minute and then I'll close us in prayer. God, sometimes we struggle to see and and struggle with doubt as we think about what you've called us to do. But Lord, as we read in this passage, we know that you are the God who not only keeps his promises, but also provides for what you ask us to do. And Lord, I pray for each soul here that you would help us to be faithful to the burdens that you've put in front of us to be faithful with the gifts that you've given us. Help us to trust you with the responsibilities and the things that you've called us to, generally and specific. Lord, as we celebrate this Memorial Day and are thankful and feel gratitude to those who have given our lives for the freedom that we have, we are also grieved and troubled and and our hearts ache for those uh, in Uvalde who have lost so much this week. Lord, would you comfort them? Would you bring about heart change in the lives of men and women in our nation that we might repent? That Lord, you would bring about changes that men and women would know you, would worship you. Lord, would you comfort those families Lord, we love you. We pray in your son's name.